3: Oh, hi. Hello, nerds. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And here I am, your host, Liv here with part two of the very unique story of Dionysus and Empelus, as told by the very late antiquity poet Nonus. What a wild ride it's been so far. And, well, here again with another episode devoted to reminding everyone that bisexuality goes hand-in-hand with the gods of Greek mythology, as does tragedy, Dionysus, Apollo, even at times, problematically, Zeus and Poseidon. They all had relationships with other men. The stories didn't often end well, but that's just a sacrifice we have to deal with in order to tell these stories. I'm sure it says something or other about how the Greeks felt about these relationships. That'll come later. For now, why focus on the sad when we can focus on the very erotic, naked wrestling as intricately described by Nonus, Double pipe of love and all that. If you haven't listened to last week's episode, you should because this one won't make any sense, but also because of the double pipe of love. Where did we last leave those lovers, those two men in the midst of their passionate love affair that, spoilers, isn't going to end well for M. Pellis? But then, is that really a spoiler? I don't think so. Not when every other story like this ends the same way. And even more so not because, well, where we did leave off of them was Dionysus foreseeing the tragic death of his beloved Ampelus. The pair had fallen in love quite dramatically, leading to Dionysus going a hint over the top with his worries and his jealousies. He was worried his own family members would abduct Ampelus from him, which I mean checks out, but still... The pair had an incredibly erotic naked wrestling match, followed by considerably less erotic other athletic contests, leading Ampellus to dress as a follower of Dionysus, if not as Dionysus himself. Oh, how much these two men love each other. This is episode 129, yes it's another tragedy, Dionysus loves Ampellus part 2. Dionysus sees the fate of his beloved Ampelus, he sees this portent that shows a horned dragon rising from the rocks, carrying on its back a young fawn. The dragon brings the fawn to an altar, tosses it down, and gores it with its horns. This, Dionysus knows immediately, means that Ampelus too will be gored by some horned creature, His heart breaks, shatters, as he realizes that his beloved Empelis doesn't have long for this earth. Still, Dionysus tries to make the most out of the time that he has left with Ampelus, however long that may be. The pair went about the mountains together, wandering and hunting and enjoying each other's company. Ampelus would play music for Dionysus, playing his pipe. And we're told that even when Empelis tried to play some odd new music, the Dionysus really thought was quite bad and confusing. He pretended it's the most beautiful music he's ever heard. Anything for this man he loves so much, but now knows isn't long for the world. One of these days when the pair were off together hunting in the forests, Empelis strayed a little too far from Dionysus. There, he was spotted by Ate, the personification of delusion. We're told that Ate is working on orders by Hera because she's angry with Dionysus. I want to believe this wasn't simply because he was the son of Zeus by another woman, but then poor Hera really is influenced by that world of men and their shittiness, so that's likely the reason. Regardless, though, Ate is there to hurt Dionysus, and she's going to do it through Ampelus. That seems to be the best way to hurt the gods. Punish the mortal they love. Ate disguises herself as another young man about Ampelus' age, and this young man convinces him that he's not getting enough out of his relationship with Dionysus. He's in love with Dionysus, of all people, and what does he have to show for it? Ate, as this young man, points out that Ampellus isn't allowed to drive Dionysus's chariot, nor ride any of his wild animals. She points out to Ampellus all the gifts that Dionysus has bestowed elsewhere. Musical instruments gifted all around the realm of Dionysus, let alone the gifts bestowed by other gods upon their lovers. Once more, Ganymede is brought up, the young man loved by Zeus and, according to Ate, gifted with a ride on an eagle's back, and with the role of cupbearer to the gods. Obviously, we won't go so far as to suggest that's true, because Ganymede was absolutely the victim of Zeus, but here the comparison stings for Ampelus. It makes him believe that he is not as special, that Dionysus isn't treating him right, that he deserves more. Ate convinces Ampelus that in order to impress Dionysus, to get this more, he needs to ride on the back of a bull. She tells him, still in the disguise, that she will help. That it's easy. Even Europa could do it, she says. Trust me. When Dionysus sees you riding this bull, he won't be able to keep his eyes off of you. Ampelus, in his desire to impress Dionysus, to prove himself worthy, does, as Ate has suggested. He approaches the bull, mounts it with ease, presumably with the help of Ate, and begins to ride this very much untamed, very wild, and very dangerous bull. Immediately, Ampelus feels a rush of adrenaline, and he calls out to the goddess Selene, boasting of his abilities on this animal that she finds sacred, on which she is said to be the best rider. This idea, it seems, is exclusive to Nonus. though the lunar crescent that is sacred to Selene was often associated with bull's horns. But regardless, this, as I'm sure you can all imagine, is Ampellus's big mistake. It's his hubris, the thing that will lead to his downfall, as already foreseen by Dionysus. So, in his attempts to impress his beloved Dionysus, Ampelus, Approaches this wild bull in the forest, away again from Dionysus's protective eyes, he climbs atop the bull, planning to ride the creature in full view of the god. Surely this will impress him. But because he boasted about his skills, Selene sends a gadfly to anger the bull to cause it to gallop off and out of Ampelus's control. Ampelus tries to get it under control, to call to the bull and ask it to stop its running and bucking and kicking. He keeps talking to the bull, even when he realizes that it is almost certainly about to kill him. He asks it to bring him back towards the satyrs, his friends, before he's killed, so that they will be there when he is, so that they will mourn him. He talks of Dionysus and how he will feel some consolation in his own death when he hears the laments of his love. A small mercy and Ampelus is finally thrown off of the bull, near enough to his friends, the satyrs. He's thrown off the animal's back with such force that his fragile body shatters at the strength of it when he hits the ground beneath the bull. He's dead before the bull gores him with its horns. The satyrs nearby hear the horror that's happened, and they find Ampelus' body bringing the news to Dionysus. On hearing this, Dionysus runs to Ampelus faster than Heracles ran for Hylus, we're told. That is how much he loved him. Though he isn't surprised, Dionysus is still horrified to see the body of his beloved Ampelus as it lies there, broken by the bull, just as Dionysus had foreseen. He clothes Ampelus, dresses him just as he had when he had first attempted to be like the god, as a back with his wreath and animal skins. Finally, he brings ambrosia from Mother Earth herself and pours it over Ampelus' wounds. Thus, with the ambrosia, Ampelus would be transformed into his ultimate shape, a vine, particularly a grapevine for Dionysus' sacred wine, fragrant just like the food of the gods that Dionysus poured upon him. Dionysus laments Ampelus, speaking line after line of hurt and sadness and anger at the fates and how this was allowed to happen, how others' fates compared, and how tragic his loss is. Just a small bit of his long and emotional lamentation "'Woe's me for love. What need was there for you to ride on a cruel bull? If some passion for storm-foot horses excited you, why did you not tell me? I could have brought you here a chariot from neighbouring Ida and gotten your horses of the ancient heavenly breed of Tross. I could have robbed the country of Ganymede, who was bred on Ida and had beauty like yours.' But Zeus saved him from man-murdering bulls and flew into the heights, carrying him with gentle claws. If you really wanted to kill wild beasts in the mountains, why did you not tell me that you had needed a car? You might have driven my rolling wagon without hurt. You might have held the untouchable reins of rhea, and flogged a team of tamed dragons unstaggering. You sing no longer your song with satyrs over the wine, no longer your marshal the love-rattle bassarids, no longer you go a-hunting with Dionysus on the chase. Alas, that Hades is never kind, and does not for a corpse accept any glorious gifts of rich metals, that I may make dead Ampelus alive once more.' Alas, that Hades is inexorable, if he will consent I rob the trees by river Eridanus and present him with all their gleaming wealth. I will bring him the flashing Erythrean stone of the Indies and all the silver of rich Alibi. I will give him all golden pactolus for my dead boy. Dionysus is nothing if not a passionate god, a god who loves with all his whole self and thus mourns with the same. Dionysus is broken by the untimely death of Ampellus, and he mourns and mourns, laments and laments. He blames everyone for it, compares himself to all those who had better luck with their lovers, even compares the level of tragedy to those who didn't. People like Apollo and Hyacinthus or Heracles and Hylas. Dionysus's tragedy is worse. That much he is certain of. Amidst Dionysus' endless, deeply emotional lament over the death of his beloved Ampelus, he is approached by Eros, god of love, disguised as the satyr Silenus. He's there because, well, Eros has a story to tell Dionysus, one that he believes will help the god grieve for poor Ampelus. And that story is yet another example of a loving relationship between two men. Eros reminds Dionysus that he is not the first god to lose a mortal lover in a tragic accident. You remember Hyacinthus, he asks the god, or Cyparissus. Yes, both of these I've covered in the podcast. I think they're in the Fan Expo Live episode, if not elsewhere as well. Eros continues, though his reminders that other gods have experienced tragedy does nothing to make Dionysus feel better. He is sure that neither Apollo nor Zephyr nor any others loved those men as much as Dionysus loved Ampellus. It simply isn't possible. No, he is alone in his grief. So Eros proceeds with his story. He tells Dionysus of a young man named Calamos, the son of Myandros, a river god. Thus they lived near the river Myandros. Calamos was a beautiful man, just gorgeous, with a natural grace, Eros adds. He was light on his feet, he could shoot his arrows almost as far as the gods themselves. He was basically very pretty and very impressive. A catch, you might call him. And Calamos, you see, loved a friend of his, another young man named Karpos. Karpos, like Calamos, was super gorgeous. He, quote, had such a beauty for his lot as mortal man never had. Two hot, gorgeous dudes loving each other hard. These men are young, that much is well described, and I will leave out bits of it for the ick factor, but the important thing is they're definitely the same age. This both connects them with Dionysus and Ampelus, and separates them from the more standard and normal same-sex relationships of parts of the Greek world, the more problematic ones. That, and it just makes it way less icky for us today, so bonus. Eros continues, explaining to Dionysus that just like he and Ampelus, Kalamos and Karpos are also completely in love and also competed against one another in contests of skill. This seems to be the thing men do together when they're in love. You know, it it happened with Apollo and Hyacinthus as well. Athleticism and sex. (laughs) And just like Dionysus and Ampelus, Calamos and Karpos had a race and set out to see who was faster. Calamos let Karpos win, he wanted to see his boyfriend excited and was more than happy to lose on purpose. Karpos was just as happy as Calamos had hoped, and so when they next decided to have a swimming contest, Calamos was planning to let Karpos win that one too. When he was doing that, he had intentionally slowed down, he'd let Karpos pass him by in the water and was ready for his beautiful lover to burst free of the water, exclaiming his joy at winning the contest for a second time. But tragically, as all of these stories are, just as Karpos was winning the contest, he was hit with what I can only describe as a rogue wave, though this was taking place in a river, In any event, it was a very unexpected wave and it took out Karpos there as he swam in the river, but not only that, it hit him at just the wrong time that it flooded his mouth with water, drowning the man near instantly. Calamos was able to survive the waves battling through the water because he wasn't hit so head-on. Calamos made it to the shore in a panic Breathing heavily and coughing up water, but most importantly, looking for Carpos amongst the water and the waves, he couldn't see him, couldn't hear anything from him. There was no trace of Carpos at all. Heartbroken, Calamos called out to the nymphs of the river, quote, "Speak, Naiads! What wind has caught up Carpos?" He continued, asking the nymphs to leave his father's river and instead travel elsewhere to any other river, but to leave that one be. He calls it fatal water. He doesn't want anyone else drinking from the river that murdered his beloved Karpos. He calls and calls to the naiads, insisting they leave him. Then he turns to anger and jealousy at the death of his lover, when most natural phenomena are personified in mythology, it's really easy to blame tragic accidents on deities of any kind. The winds, the waves, the river itself is to blame in the death of Karpos. And so, just like Dionysus with Ampellus, Calamos turns to tragic, beautiful lamentation as a way to handle the death of his beloved and some blaming of others for good measure. Quote, Speak, naiads, who has quenched the light of love? How long are you, my boy? Why do you like the water so much? Can you have found a better friend in the water? Have you thrown to the winds the love of poor Calamos that you may stay with him? If one nymph of the naiads enamored has carried you off, tell me, and I will make war on them all. If wedded love is your pleasure, and you want my sister for a wife, do... "'Say so, and I will build you a bride-chamber in the stream. "'Have you passed me, Karpos, forgetting the familiar shore? "'I have shouted till I am tired, and you do not hear my call. "'If Notos blew on you, if bold Euros, "'let him go off wandering without dances by himself, "'the barbarous enemy of love.' If Boreas overwhelmed you, I will go to Orithia. If the wave covered you and had no pity for your beauty, if my father carried you off in the merciless rush of the wave, let him receive his son also in those man slaying waters. Let him hide Calamos near to dead Carpos, where Carpos wandered and died. I will fall headlong. I will quench my burning love with a draught of water from Acheron. Nothing could make it better for Calamos, though. He considered himself already dead alongside his beloved, beautiful Karpos. So instead, he cut a piece of his hair, a long strand that he'd cherished, and gave it to his father as a memory of himself. Then he announced that, plainly, Calamos and Karpos had only one life. Because of that, both will have one watery death, one watery grave. With that, Calamos threw himself into the roiling river that had so recently taken the life of Carpos. Thus, Eros ends his bummer of a story to Dionysus, and surprise, surprise, this tragic story of another pair of young lovers whose untimely deaths left a mark on their story does nothing to make Dionysus feel better about the death of Ampelus. Weird, I know. It's almost like there just aren't any good stories revolving around same-sex love in Greek mythology. Hmm. Patriarchy this, patriarchy that. You know. Tragically, all of the stories of relationships between men that I can think of Apollo and Hyacinthus, Cyparissus, Dionysus and Empelus, Heracles and Hylas, even Achilles and Patroclus have one major thing in common they end tragically. There are affairs between men that don't end in full-blown tragic death, I would imagine. Heracles had a number of brief boyfriends that I can't recall right now, I don't think they all died, but mostly and certainly in the stories that describe any form of passionate love between men, they end tragically. This is a reminder from the ancient world that as much as we might want to label them progressive in these ways, They really weren't. They simply included the bare minimum in a pre-Christian world. Acknowledgement that attraction and love could and did exist between people of the same sex or gender or just people overall. They were still a patriarchy that placed inherent value in opposite sex relationships. Not suggesting that men wouldn't or couldn't love other men, at least for a time, but they could not live like that. The tragedies of those examples enforce the idea that in ancient Greece, regardless of how loving or passionate those relationships were, they couldn't last, at least in the traditional society, or at least openly. I'm sure that there were people who found a way to live their lives in their own way, but they were limited. Even think about that moment when Kalamos is calling out about the death of Karpos. He specifically says, like, if you'd wanted marriage... You could have married my sister. Like he's acknowledging that if Karpos had wanted that quote unquote traditional life, that, that traditional sort of future, he could have had it, but he would have had to have it with a woman. It's, it's an interesting way to think about this and to look at it, even at just to have that specific example of sort of that reminder that love is love, but back then it didn't fully work that way. Because, you know, the patriarchy and power structure between men and women and reproduction and etc, etc, etc. I do think, though, it's important to call out these stories for understanding love between men, love across genders, and in the case of many other stories I've told, an understanding that there were, very obviously, gender non-conforming and transgender people in the ancient world. I find it to be one of the better arguments against transphobes who claim nonsensical ideals about this being new or a fad. Just scream Iphis in their face, or Canis, or Tiresias. Just like the story from today, those stories of trans people are often dark, but they still recognize their existence and their need to be transformed into their true gender that is different from the sex they were assigned at birth. Still, though all of that is true, we also do have to watch just how much credit we give them. I give them credit for recognizing these concepts, relationships, that passions existed, but I think most of that credit is due in comparison to the overarching Christian ideals that have influenced so many of our modern societies now, and especially in comparison to the Christian histories of so many regions in the world. Yes, the Greeks get credit for knowing that often men loved other men, for vaguely accepting the idea that maybe kind of sometimes women loved other women. They don't get as much credit there. And they definitely get credit for recognizing the diversity of genders and finding ways of understanding people who were transgender or non-binary and allowing them to mythologically live their lives in their true gender if it was different from the sex they were born with. But they were by no means progressive, and for the most part they certainly weren't better than we are now. Still, with all of those caveats and explanations of the historical setting and nuances, these stories from the ancient Greek world still prove the most important thing. Nothing about gender identity or sexual attraction or across genders, any of it, nothing about this is new or the result of any outside factors that modern phobes of various kinds might suggest. Being gay or bi or intersex or trans or asexual is as old as time. As old as humanity itself. And the only thing different now is Finally, a bit of growing acceptance in the world and the ability to be louder. All of that said, and all of my not-so-subtle jabs at the near-total lack of representation of women loving other women, there is one glaring exception. Because even in the ancient Greek world, with all of its deep-rooted and dark patriarchal shit, there was still one woman, one very real and not-at-all mythological woman, who was incredibly unbelievably famous, singing songs about how much she loved other women, Sappho's story next week. And coming later this month, a conversation with Julie Levy, who specializes in asexuality in Greek mythology, utterly fascinating stuff, I'm just working out when exactly in the month that episode is coming, but let me tell you, it is good, I absolutely loved recording it. I'm saying this right now because I've literally just stopped recording it by the time I'm recording this. It's fresh in my mind and thrilled with it. I can't wait for you guys all to hear, along with, like, everything else that's happening this month, because we are having some fun. Ugh, nerds, thank you all so much for listening. You are the best. I'm having another one of those moments where I just look around and think, this is the fucking coolest job in the whole world, and I couldn't do it without you all. Thank you for all that you do and all that you listen to and all of the ads you don't complain about. Thank you. I am Liv, and I just really love this shit just so damn much. Obviously.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.